Well, to me this morning, if you would, to the book of Acts, and we're going to begin a new study through Scripture in the uh, book of Acts, begin there with verse number one, and uh, as I was preparing this week, the this was the uh, question I thought that this passage uh, helps us think about is whether or not we have a faith that is reliable. So let's look at that question together. Is our faith reliable? Acts chapter one, we're going to begin there with verse number one. And the scripture says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs or incontrovertible evidences being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven... As he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who, is, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Father, thank you for the scripture, its record of your faithfulness, your uh, activity among people to make us know who you are, God, what it is that you require of us as we follow and worship you. And we pray that your spirit will open our eyes and our understanding. God, we thank you that you choose to live inside of us, to give us life and animate us and connect us to you, God, the source of our life, our creator, our sustainer and savior. And we pray today, God, thanking you for how you are at work, and we pray now, God, that your spirit will teach us from Scripture, your truth, and we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Well, I thought about, uh, I had, when I came to faith in Christ, I think like a lot of people, a, um, let's see, I am on, I am not advancing, oh, it's up there, it's not uh, behind me for some reason, so that's, can you guys uh, make it so that I see what's behind me as well? Thank you. The uh, apologize. 
for uh, being a distraction myself. But I, I thought when I came to faith in Christ, you start with a certain amount of information and, and uh, enough to make an intelligent decision to follow Jesus. I've shared before, it was my mother who introduced me to uh, faith in Christ and who shared the gospel with me. And I'd heard the gospel, but I hadn't internalized it before. And so at 24 years of age taking everything in the moment that I knew about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. I committed my life to him. I surrendered to him. I said yes. You know, last week we talked about giving God our yes. Thank you. And it, it um, began a journey for me. So you start this walk as a follower of Christ with what you know. But, it, but I, as I continued to follow Jesus, I went to work, you know, the same place I worked before, and I, I started to think through my faith, and you, of course, you will receive challenges to what you believe as you live in the world. There are scoffers and people who disagree with our idea of what life means as we follow Jesus, and, but I thought after a while I had no interest in dedicating myself to a system of belief that was riddled with unanswered questions and doubtful propositions. I'm like, I don't want to have a faith I'm not certain of. And uh, I, somebody gave me a booklet as a brand new Christian that was called Survival Kit for New Christians. And I have it on my desk. I was looking at it this week. And the writer is a guy named Ralph W. Neighbor Jr. And he talks about the things that people are likely to encounter as they begin their journey following Christ. And uh, he, he says that we'll go through stages. He described five stages. And I found myself at the beginning uh, resonating with what he said. He called two of the stages the doubting stage and the panic search for truth stage. And what he really says is like as you read the Bible, what you're, you will encounter at times are things that uh, you're trying to harmonize. For example, in the Gospels, there are accounts that are seen from different points of view. Um, you probably heard people talk about the synoptic Gospels, like they're the Gospels that are seen from one perspective. And then John's Gospel is written from a completely different point of view. But they're accounts that you learn to harmonize as you follow Christ, but it's important that we come to an understanding that our faith is credible. When I came to faith in Christ, it was based on other people's testimony to me about what it meant to be a Christian, my mom's primarily, who was the person that reminded me, okay, these are the gospel realities. The Bible says that we're created by God, sin separated us from God, that God sent his son to be the savior, that Jesus died in our place, was buried, was raised from the dead, and that he paid the penalty of our sin and he brought us the possibility of reconciliation. So I heard that based on someone else's testimony to me and I believed it. And I think partly the compelling part of it to me was the fact that I knew what I was doing was not working. I was 24 years old. My life was uh, not in a good place because of my decision-making. And so I was open to hope. I'm like, there's got to be something different and better than what my life is currently like. So why not try God's way to understand life? That's what I thought. It's got to be better than the way I'm doing it. And so I brought all of the things I knew about myself and what I needed to the little bit. That's what I'm saying. 
that I knew at the time about who Jesus was, and I became a learner. In the Bible, the word disciple is learner. That's what we are. We start out, and we're adding to faith, knowledge, and reading Scripture. And I remember uh, we had a Wednesday night service, and my pastor would teach through books of the Bible. And I remember him teaching through Hebrews and coming to Hebrews chapter 6 and me thinking, this is the most difficult thing I ever heard, you know. And it, but it, it caused me to think deeply about what Scripture meant. And so I was growing and learning and gaining confidence that I had in my possession when I read the Bible a historic account of what God wanted me to know. It was a process for me. And I think for most people we would say as we read the Bible, gaining a, a kind of a confidence that I can take my belief system and I can talk through it with somebody else and I have no fear whatsoever that something that they will say will undermine the credibility of what God has said in, in his word. I have complete trust that God has given us an accurate account of his, his knowledge, his will revealed in Jesus and that the Bible is credible and that Jesus is worthy of the commitment of my life and my worship and, and him being primary and then me serving him. So that, I think, when we read Acts is one of the intentions that the writer has and he people conclude that the writer is Luke because of strong internal evidence that he starts out talking about uh, Theophilus and this is apparently someone who he had directed the gospel of Luke toward and this is a companion to Luke so when you read the gospel of Luke the first time I saw this was probably in Charlie Brown cartoon Charles Schultz was like a thoughtful uh, person a Christian and uh, the idea that there was a two-part thing in the Bible, Gospel of Luke, Book of Acts. They're companions, written by the same person. And the Gospel of Luke ends, and then Acts begins to tell the story after Jesus is resurrected and ascends and gives his disciples a mission. And so in the very first part of this, we think about the is the Bible reliable? Is the gospel message credible? Is my faith something that I can have confidence and security and not feel it being threatened by anything that happens in, in the world? And we'll talk about some of the things that happen. Jesus' life has this compelling historic attestation. When you read Luke, you are reading the inspired work of a uh, historian. He's a historian. He gives detailed places, names, locations, events. He is doing that because he wants you to understand that this is a historic account. This isn't myth. This isn't legend. This isn't fabrication. This is a historic account of what God did when he became human in the world. That's what he wants you to know is that he is attesting to truths and realities that could be researched and ascertained. He, he's going to give you all this information because he says these things are widely known by everybody. That's what he's trying to drive home to us in giving us the life of Christ. He is fixing it in history for us. And so 
Scripture, when we read it, has this uh, remarkable historic accuracy. In the opening verses, he explains that Acts is a historical companion to the other gospel, the gospel of Luke. And biblical scholarship isn't threatened by history or archaeology or anthropology or metallurgy. I I was reading about, you know, I hate to speak negatively, although it's a cult, so I, I don't mind that much. But the Book of Mormon, for example, when you read the Book of Mormon, what you find is that the anthropology is wrong. It claims that a group of people migrated from Israel and became Native Americans, but anthropologists say there is no way that that happened. It's incredible. There's no accurate way. Genetics prove that that's not true. Metallurgy. They claim that there were tools in North America that uh, people who study that the development of like iron ore say there were no such tools during the historic time frame that the book claims to have occurred. Language. It claims uh, languages that don't even exist. When you read the Bible, it is a translation of Greek and Hebrew and uh, Aramaic. It's not, it's not a, some language that never existed. It's language that's translatable. And so the anthropology, all of it works, the history. So every time archaeology uncovers something in the Middle East, it confirms the biblical history. So when we read the Bible, what we know is I don't have to be threatened that some event is going to happen in the world that is going to cause me to have to throw my faith away. It is confirmed by all of the sciences that could be applied to the kind of literature that it's intended to be. The Bible is helped. Trust in it is heightened, and the details are reinforced by scholarly inquiry. That's helpful to know. I remember reading um, some, you, you know, I had a course for, for one thing that helped me to think through some of the ideas of, like, the, is my faith credible? But each time you, you see some event, you'll read things in the, uh, in the news frequently, archaeology that happens, it's like, okay, well, we found even more evidence that David's kingdom existed. So those are the kind of external things that remind us, okay, what I'm reading here is something that I can depend on. And so scripture is transmitted for us accurately. How do we know that? Because we have eyewitness accounts. That's what the Bible is claiming for us, that these were eyewitnesses of these events. And the authority for my belief and practice is that there was a trustworthy eyewitness account And the majority of these folks faced martyrdom rather than deny the truth of their claim. So there are great uh, quotes by people like Chuck Colson about conspiracies and how easily they fall apart, how readily they dismantle under examinations and, and pressure. But all of Jesus' followers continued to follow him all with the exception of the uh, Apostle John, who Scripture tells us died of old age, but the rest of these folks were willingly martyred rather than deny what they had seen and experienced with their own eyes and through their own life. And we know that Scripture has a focal point, an organizing focus, and that is Jesus. So when this writer here talks about the uh, 
what he's going to describe to us. It is the suffering of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. He talks about the incontrovertible proofs, the evidences of his resurrection. When you read 1 Corinthians 15, you see that uh, over 500 people saw Jesus. In the 40 days that he presented himself after his resurrection, they continued to see Jesus alive. He ate uh, with people. He sat down with them, and he broke bread with them as a way of uh, demonstrating that it was a, a resurrected body. He shows his pierced hands and feet to Thomas when Thomas says, unless I put my fingers into the nail prints, I won't believe. And Jesus says, behold or hold me, handle me. See that I'm, it's, it's me in his resurrected and glorified form. So the, the Bible presents us with these evidences, but we know that Jesus is the focal point of all of it. What Jesus said and taught, that's what Luke is talking about here. That's what Acts communicates. We think for ourselves, what is orthodoxy? How do I know that the Christianity that I'm committed to is the same Christianity that the apostles practiced? That's what Acts is about. It's showing you what these people taught, believed, lived. What's orthodoxy? Orthodoxy is right belief. It's knowing that what Jesus came to proclaim got upheld and was passed along accurately. And so Jesus' teaching and his life are what we find continued. uh, And really the focus is on two big ideas in the book of Acts. The resurrection. Every time you hear people preach the gospel in the book of Acts, they are focusing on Jesus' resurrection. They are reminding uh, people that the reason that this faith is so uh, powerful is because a a person who was dead came to life, and that person was God incarnate. And the other uh, powerful truth is the Spirit's coming that we see in this passage. The, The Holy Spirit of God came to animate and give life and to empower us to live. We talked about this in Sunday school today. The power that the Holy Spirit brings to us and we see in Acts, although we're going to uh, struggle and wrestle with, okay, what's normative? What? Because there are uh, issues that occur in Acts that we think, is this still how we behave today? The speaking in tongues and the baptism of the Spirit and some of the questions that we'll find there, I think, will help us as we think about our own following of Jesus. And just thinking about how do you interpret the Bible? How do we, what principles do we use to try to understand what the Scripture is trying to teach us? So it, it is a helpful book to study in that respect as well. And we see what their lives were like, and, and, and so that way we can see what our lives should be like. We see Jesus' life and ministry and his miracles Uh, explained in scripture and people will often balk at the miraculous we live in a modern world where people are like I don't believe that uh, somebody could ascend into heaven I don't believe that uh, there's anybody that can do more than what we observe in the natural order but the if we acknowledge God to begin with if we say God exists then then miracles follow if there is someone who caused everything and is behind everything and upholds everything, we should concede from that point forward that there is someone who, is, who supersedes, who's over the, the natural order and who can 
shape it and work in it in a way to hasten processes or heal or or uh, def- uh, defy the natural order that we observe with gravity, for example. If he created gravity, he can also uh, uh, be over gravity, and that's what we see in this passage is uh, the ascension of a physical human being through the clouds back to the place that he says, I'm going back where I was to begin with, and then I'm going to return for you. So all of life is a miracle. You know, I was thinking about, we we had uh, one day this week, it was like a 20% chance of rain, and we got about five inches of rain that day. You know, I happened to be over here at the church that day. And I think about the hydrological cycle that is just part of this tiny little world that we're a part of, the earth, that God gave us this way that weather occurs. And weather is helpful and aesthetically beautiful. I'm fascinated by like a massive thunderstorm. It's beautiful in some respect. It can be destructive, but we think just in the creation of earth only, which is such a small part of the universe that we can observe, how God powerfully demonstrates miracles to us. The earth itself is uh, surrounded by a canopy of gases that are perfect for you to be able to breathe and not me and stay alive. It's a perfect mixture of chemicals that keep us breathing and living and protected from the sun, right? That atmosphere keeps us from burning up. We're in this elliptical orbit around the sun that gives us seasons. Aren't you glad when summer finally is at its end and you get that first morning where the temperature is like in the 60s or 50s and you're like, Praise God. Seasons, God gave us those, and they're part of his wonderful creation. Did he have to do that? It could just be like 100% humidity all the time and 90 degrees every day. It is that way somewhere. But we get seasons, and they're an example of a kind creator. And the the world itself, the life that we have, it's a, a miracle in that we never get so close to the sun that we are consumed and we never get so far off that we freeze and it's a miracle that God gave us in creating the world in the pattern that he did. So I think sometimes when people go, I don't believe in miracles. Well, you don't believe in life because life is teeming with miracles. Reproduction is a miracle. Everything around us for a person whose eyes are open is a miracle. I've I've said before, I had a professor in college who was a chemist and a Ph.D., and he uh, taught at NC State. He, he said that here's the issue. People will, will say, if I hadn't believed it, I wouldn't have seen it. That's not what they say out loud, but that's what they live in life. If I hadn't believed it, I wouldn't have seen it. In other words, if, you're, if you have a way of approaching life where you think, well, life is just nature. Life is nothing more than evolution and those kinds of principles and it's accident. Well, that's what you'll see in the world. But if if a person can open their eyes and see that there's a miracle that comes from the hand of God, then nothing you read in the Bible is going to startle you or, or trouble you. Here's what the scripture says in John that gives an explanation to the way people are and the way we approach life. 
He says, this is the verdict. Light is coming to the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. You know, a lot of times people will say, well, I have intellectual problems with the Bible. But I think if they are honest, what they would say is, I have a problem with releasing control of my life and acknowledging that God exists and that there's a righteous judge. And, and we think, well, I'm not such a terrible person, and maybe you aren't, but rebellion is what troubles God, the fact that we won't acknowledge that he exists and that we won't surrender our lives to his control. That is what alienates a person from God, and that's what this scripture means. Here's the verdict. Here's the crisis that people are in, is that light has come into the world in Jesus, but people love their own life, their own way more than they love God. And they weren't willing to put it down. And so the Bible says that's the crisis that people find themselves in. And the scripture here shows us the apostles' teaching and their eyewitness accounts, as we've uh, discussed. They were chosen by Jesus and discipled to faithfully transmit his truth. This is how the apostle John puts it in the uh, first John. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Do you see what he's doing here? It's the same idea that Luke has. Is he is saying, listen, your faith is not a blind faith. When we commit to follow Jesus, we are following these people who walked with him, who ate with him, who lived with him. People like John the Apostle. He says, we saw this. We looked at it. Our hands touched it. We proclaim that to you the, about the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father, he says, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to you to make your joy complete, our joy complete. So when we think about the scripture and what, what places like Acts are doing for us, it is confirming to us that the, the uh, historic account here is based on people who knew Jesus and saw this and have told us the uh, narrative that they personally experienced. I can believe everything in the Bible is historically accurate. There's still a point out here in which I must make a commitment by faith in this truth. So I believe it's accurate completely. I believe it reflects what people saw and experienced. There was still a point in my life where I had to say, I relinquish control to you. I say yes, and I follow after Jesus. So the scripture shows us this historic, the way it's historically attested. But secondly, we see that Jesus left us with a clear understanding of his purpose in the scripture here. So he tells us that he's going to give us the Holy Spirit as a resource in verse 4. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. What is this promise that he's told them? Well, Scott talked about it in Lead and Worship. That he says, I'm not going to leave you orphans. He says, I'm, I'm going to give you a comforter. And so we're gonna, when we read about the Holy Spirit and what the Bible says about him, we find that this is God himself. The scripture describes God as existing in three persons, a Godhead, a, a God in the Father, God in the Son, God in the Holy Spirit. 
that God always lived in perfect community, that God didn't need anything, that God was, you remember how he described himself through Moses to when Moses said, okay, I'm supposed to go and say God told me to let the people of Israel go out of Egypt. Whom shall I say sent me? And God said, you shall say what? I am. I am is who, who sent you. So God is self-existing. And, and Jesus, God has always existed, and God doesn't need anything outside of himself. And so when Jesus says, I'm going up into heaven, but I'm not going to leave you orphans, he was promising the Spirit to us. This is how it says it in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. He's called here a he, not an it, not a force. So when we think about the Holy Spirit, sometimes we'll say it. It's, the Holy Spirit is not an it. It, it. He is a he. He is a person. He has the attributes of personality. And this is important. Because we're talking about God's nature. And God's nature is that he is personal and he can be known. That's when we talk about having a relationship with him. I can have a relationship with him. The scripture describes the, the spirit as an advocate. Someone who takes our part. A helper. And someone who will be with you, the Bible says, forever. The spirit of truth he's called here. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. That's what Jesus promised them. He says, this is the promise that I made to you, is that the Holy Spirit would come to you and live in you, animate you, give you the ability to live this life. So we wondered. This is what I wondered. when It was a hesitation, a point of... Uh, uncertainty for me beforehand. If I say yes, if I start to follow Jesus, can I keep doing this? That's what I was unsure of. And if it depended on me only, the answer is no, I could not. I couldn't do it. But the promise that Jesus makes is I will live in you. I will empower you. I, in you, day by day, will give you the capacity to live this life and to follow me. And so this Holy Spirit is vital in understanding this life as followers of Christ. He says, I'll not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So he didn't abandon them when he ascended up into heaven. He uh, imparts to them, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. So also the scripture shows us that Jesus doesn't promise an earthly theocracy. The disciples hear all these things that Jesus is saying, but this is what's on their mind in uh, verse 6 there. It says, Therefore when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom uh, to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So Jesus does not promise an earthly theocracy. The disciples cared about their nation. Jesus cares about the nations. There's a difference. They care about their nation. He cares about the nations, plural, the people. His intent is to make disciples of everybody on the planet. They have this little vision. Jesus says, my vision is much bigger than your vision. 
He, he didn't intend at that time to create some sort of theocracy. Now, patriotism is a quality. Like, I've been enjoying reading historical novels by a writer named Herman Wook lately, and he writes about uh, military, and he writes about world wars, and he writes about the dynamics and the courage of soldiers, and it's all admirable. And, it, and it, patriotism is fine, but God's vision of the world is bigger than any one country. His vision for all of eternity is bigger than just our little slice of it. The disciples' little slice of it wasn't even America, right? It was Israel. It was their country where their pride was stamped and where their lives had been nurtured and where they wanted to see their country uh, restored to a powerful, prominent place that it had in the world. Jesus said, that is not my primary concern at this time. Sorry. And he, but he's going to show them what his primary concern is. He didn't say the first thing you need for the gospel to work is the perfect government. The gospel will work in any government in the world. In fact, some governments that are so much worse than the government that we have in the United States of America are places where the good news of Jesus Christ is flourishing like crazy. We think we just need the right set of circumstances. No, we don't. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said what we need is a commitment to proclaim the gospel, the good news. And you see that in verse 8 because he says, I'm giving you power, but here's what the power is for. He says, I'm, uh, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says, here's what it's about. I'm calling you to participate in my mission. I'm calling you to participate in my mission. He says, you're my witnesses. I'm uh, Take this gospel with you as you're going into the world. That's really the sense of that. Mark chapter 2, There's a, this is even before the resurrection has occurred when Jesus is in his gospel ministry. It says, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. That's the uh, old King James. And straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door, and he preached the word unto them. So we think about what it is that we're called to do. I heard this only recently, but people uh, said that the, in the first century they were gossiping the gospel. They were gossiping. It was noised about. That's how it happened. That people talked about Jesus with other people. And they said, you will not believe this incredible reality that God came to us, loved us, died for us, and was raised from the dead. That's how the gospel was spreading. And that's what our mission is. Jesus comes to us and he says, I have a mission. You're part of it. That is to proclaim the good news to uh, everywhere that you go. And, and in the first century, they, he expands their vision. There's a concentric way that the gospel is advancing. And I always thought Jesus' intent is that the gospel would have an ever-increasing geographic reach. He didn't mean for it to be some localized religion. He meant for the good news to have an ever-increasing geographic reach. So we think... 
Our involvement in Jesus' mission means that we grow to see every kind of human in the world as someone he says, my grace is intended for that person. That's what he says to us. So we participate in world missions. We sponsor missionaries. Sometimes we go ourselves. I've had the privilege of, of going, proclaiming the gospel to people. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, nobody can come to the Father except through me. So even though there are all kinds of religions in the world, Jesus says, I am the way. What we know about him and who he is is the most important thing that any of us could know or any of us could tell anybody else. And then the scripture shows us that Jesus ascended and will return to earth again. So his ascension underscores for us his divinity. One of the things that it shows us is that Jesus didn't begin to have a history in 2 AD or 3 AD or whenever historians say Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's not when Jesus started to live. Jesus had already lived from eternity before that, Micah 5, 2 says. His goings forth, talking about the Messiah, will be uh, as from one who is from everlasting. You think, well, how do I get to be from everlasting? Well, he had always existed. He is eternal in his nature. And so Jesus is from everlasting. He is, the scripture teaches us, and the disciples believed by very, in very nature, God. And when he ascended, he returned physically to the place he already had been. This is what he told Nicodemus in conversation. He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. So what Jesus said to Nicodemus is, I have a pre-existence. I lived before I lived here in Israel. He's, he's always existed and became a person incarnate, took on flesh, and had this earthly existence. But when we see him ascending, he is returning to the place that he was before. And his ascension also uh, predicates his return. It shows us that he had a prior existence, but it also predicates his Return. It shows us that because the, the, the disciples stood gawking like we would have. Imagine standing uh, and watching Jesus ascend physically up through the clouds and being there. You would have done exactly what they did. You would have gawked with your mouth open for who knows how long. And then the uh, men appear to them. We, uh, it's probably implied that they were angel, angelic beings. And they say, the same Jesus will turn in like manner. So we believe Jesus will return physically, visibly to the Mount of Olives, to this place. But Jesus' return is going to put an end to the reign of sin on this planet. Aren't you grateful for that reality? That there's a time ahead of us when God is going to put an end to the reign of sin on this planet. When he returns, he will establish righteousness and put an end to rebellion. The Bible pictures Jesus' return as a thief in the night. A thief in the night. When you hear noises at night, you're startled. The Bible says the return of Jesus is going to be startling, unexpected. 
and especially given the fact that uh, so many people live in rebellion and scoff about the very idea that he might return. As things were in the days of Noah, people going out uh, about their routines, they'll be overtaken and blindsided, Matthew 24, 37 says. Though people were forewarned, they were not prepared. They had been forewarned, but they were not prepared, as it was in the days of Noah. Noah, the Bible says, was a preacher of righteousness. He preached righteousness. And yet, how many people got on the boat in Noah's day? Just Noah and his family, right? And the Bible says that's how it's going to be when Christ returns like it was in the day of Noah, that people are going to be going about their lives and they are going to be, even though they've been told, they're going to be blindsided by his visible return. The Bible says that his return will be visible like lightning seen from the east to the west in the Gospel of Matthew. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. And even even though they, even they who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen, the scripture says. The Bible says this is where life is going. This is where things are headed. That you and I live in the uh, expectation of the return of Christ. And in one of two ways we think about that, depending on our understanding of who God is, we either look at it as the Bible calls it a blessed hope. That's how I see it. We would say, even so, come Lord Jesus. We hope that you come and put an end to this nonsense. We hope that you come and restore righteousness in this world. We hope that you come and take away death and pain and suffering. We live in an expectation of you doing that. We hope that you come and destroy all the evil that's in this world. We want our family to be uh, part of your protection, your salvation. And we pray for that and we minister toward that end. Our, the people that we love, the people that we can influence. We want that. But we also want you, God, to come and restore your righteous reign. That's one way of looking at the return of Christ. The other way is that people, it says in the Bible, will cry out to the rocks and say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is coming. That's the other way of perceiving it. It's either for you the beginning of hope forever or the end of all hope. That's what the Bible says. So when the the scripture here talks about the return of Christ, it's saying it's one of two things for you. It's either your blessed hope or... It's the end of hope. And we see how Jesus' disciples behaved. They band together. And so they are obedient to Jesus. Jesus tells them, tarry in Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to send you my promise, my spirit. And so they do that. They stay in Jerusalem. They go back up into the upper room and they pray. They're obedient. I always like this verse in Second Chronicles, even though the context of it is negative. There's a king who disobeys uh, God. There we go. I'm sorry. This scripture, uh, this king has been disobedient to God and depend on foreign allies and not on God for his salvation. And the prophet comes to him and he says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. I always like that. It's a challenge as well. 
But the Bible says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to prove himself strong on behalf of the one whose heart is completely loyal to him. I want to be that person. I'm not perfect, but I want to live a life of obedience. I want to be the person whom God, his eyes are going to and fro. Isn't that a worthy goal? To say, I want to be the person that God, when he looks in all the earth, he goes, there's a person that I can prove myself strong toward that person because their heart is loyal toward me. And the disciples were obedient, and they were committed to pray and united in prayer. There are no shortcuts and substitutes for prayer. Prayer requires us. We talked about this in Bible study earlier. Why is it so hard? Because you've got to interrupt yourself. You have to interrupt yourself. You have to slow down. Hit pause for a little bit. This, I walk most days, get up and walk in the morning. And usually I'll put on earbuds and I'll listen to podcasts, sometimes sports or sometimes other interests, maybe spiritual things. And lately I've uh, just left my earbuds at home and tried to use that time that I'm walking to pray. And um, I, I like it because then when I get back for the rest of the, my Bible study and stuff like that, I'm like, I've already prayed. I'm ahead of the game now, you know. And guess what? I pray for you guys as I'm walking. I pray for our congregation. I pray for things that are of concern to me. I praise God. And, I, and, and I'm like, this is good. You know, our prayer life is important because it connects us and reminds us of what really matters in life. I'm not trying to be boastful or anything like that because um, I know myself too well. But I do know that prayer really matters and that these people were committed to praying. And the Bible says when God has something great for his church, this is not the Bible, it's Jonathan Edwards, a great uh, theologian. He said when God has something great for his church, it is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayers of his people. And when God's going to do something powerful, he says, it will be because people hit pause. It will be because we recognize, hey, this is how God has said he does it. Jesus said people ought always to pray and never to give up. The only explanation for the kind of things we'll see when we go through the book of Acts are two things, prayer and the Holy Spirit. Prayer and the Holy Spirit. That was what was happening. Mary Jo Sharp wrote that the Bible has the most surviving copies of any ancient document to put uh, the rest of uh, to put the text to the test for variance or for corruption. In other words, what she's saying there are around twenty four thousand manuscripts or parts of manuscripts of this document, the Bible, in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, so that people, scholars can read those and compare them to the translation that you hold in your hand and say this is accurate. It's accurate to what the disciples recorded and passed along to us. It's been, uh, it's been kept for us by God, by God as an accurate way of knowing his will and his purpose. A writer named William Bokstein said critics once claimed that the Hittites never existed and that Moses couldn't have written the Pentateuch since writing had not been invented. Since then, archaeology has amply disproved these and countless other allegations against the Bible. So, the Bible is not threatened by scholarly inquiry. That's good to know. That's comforting to me. I don't want to believe or commit to something that can't stand scrutiny. 
I want to know what I've committed my life to can be scrutinized and my faith can stand up because it will hold up, it will bear up. Even if I can completely uh, be convinced that the Bible is credible and it, uphold, it holds up to scholarly examination or evaluation, there's still a point where a person has to commit who Jesus is by faith. You can say, I believe that that's all historically accurate. Okay, it still leaves this question in our heart. Have we committed to Jesus as Savior and Lord? And, and is he our master? Or are we depending completely on him for the forgiveness of our sins? The Bible says, therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In biblical understanding, faith is commitment or full reliance. That's what it is. Does that describe your heart's attitude toward Jesus? Would you say, my faith is completely reliant on him? Have you surrendered to him as Lord and experienced his mercy and kindness and the forgiveness of your sins? The Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's goodness. That's grace. He's made the way. The Bible says whoever surrenders their will cries out. Like I said in the very beginning, I knew only enough to get saved. That's about how much I knew. I knew enough to know what I was doing wasn't working. I needed something. And I committed my life to Christ. And then across time, have continued to only grow in confidence that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Have you obeyed the gospel and followed Jesus in baptism to publicly identify with his death, burial, and resurrection? That's what baptism is. It is a dramatic, a dramatic representation of a person's commitment to Jesus, publicly identifying with him. When we lower a person into water, we will say, buried in the likeness of his death, I will say that, and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. That's what baptism portrays, is our obedience to Jesus, because he told us, begin your life publicly in following me this way. We're going to pray now and have a time of uh, commitment. It may be that as you've listened, there's a way you need to respond. I encourage you to do so. As God is leading you, I'll be happy to pray with you and, and uh, help you in any way that, uh, that I can this morning. Would you stand with me now? And we're going to have a prayer and a time of uh, commitment and response. And you're welcome to respond this morning publicly if God is leading you to do so. And after that, we will have a song and, be, and uh, conclude our service. But let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that what we have is an accurate way of seeing your life and heart and ways and that it can, it, you didn't leave us some obscure, unapproachable record. It is clear what you want and who you are. And so we pray that you'll help us as we live our lives for you, God, that you would uh, give us confidence so that we can be bold to witness to others and to share with them this great, incredible life that we've come to know. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.